That was some singing going on this morning at Mountain View. I want, I want so bad to be able to do that, but what comes out of my mouth sounds nothing like it. <laughs> but good morning to everyone. It's uh, good to be with you here this morning. Uh, it's a blessing to be standing here. Uh, such a wonderful opportunity. I thank Brother Sammy for this opportunity. It's so wonderful to be here with all of you. And I'm praying for Sammy and his family's safety as they head back home. But if you will, this morning, turn with me to the book of Daniel, chapter 6. Daniel, chapter 6. And now I know we, uh, we all go through some hard times. My family is going through some hard times right now. I know a lot of you here are going through some hard times. And God has been speaking to my heart and showing me some things. As he was showing me some of these things, I started thinking about the children of Israel, and how they had spent four centuries in Egyptian bondage, and how they had cried to God for help, and how Scripture says that God heard the cries of His people, and He called a stuttering shepherd named Moses away from his father-in-law's flock to go to Pharaoh in Egypt and demand the children of Israel be let go. No one could foresee what God was about to do. God knew that Pharaoh, as hard-hearted as he was, would continue to refuse to let God's people go. God would bring ten plagues on Egypt that would rip the country to its core. Those plagues were the plague of all the water turning to blood, the plague of frogs, the plague of gnats, the plague of flies, the plague on the livestock, the plague of bulls, the plague of hell the plague of locusts, and the plague of darkness. That was nine plagues. And by the time of this tenth and final plague, this country is just torn all to pieces by the previous nine plagues. The Egyptian people are scared. Then God tells Moses, I will strike Pharaoh and the land of Egypt with one more blow. One more blow. And after that, he will let you go. In fact, he will force you to leave. The last plague is the death of Egypt's firstborn. All the firstborn sons in Egypt were about to die from every house, that is, except for the house that had the blood of the sacrificed lamb applied to the doorposts. One of these firstborn deaths included the son of Pharaoh himself. Then everything happened just as God said it would. Pharaoh ordered the Israelites to leave his country only to harden his heart one more time and turn to go after them after they had left. Pharaoh took over 600 chariots, each one with its, com uh, with its commander along with the troops. So all the forces of Pharaoh's army take off after the Israelites 
and they catch up with them at the Red Sea. Now, as God was showing me these things, I could, I could see it playing out like a movie in front of me. I could see the water. I could see the children of Israel standing at the water's edge. I could see the enemy closing in behind them. I could see them surrounded on all sides. I could hear them cry out. And I could hear God as He says, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the people to go. Lift up your staff and your hand over the water and part the water so the children of Israel can cross over on dry ground. I could see Moses raise his staff up over the water. I could hear the winds begin to blow and I could see the waters rise up in a large wall on each side. And I could see that open pathway through the water that the children of Israel had to cross over on. And as I envisioned this pathway that the parted waters had created, I felt God speak to me. What if the waters don't part? What if the waters don't part? What if there is water in front of you and an army closing in behind you and the waters don't part? What if your prodigal doesn't return right away? What if your sickness doesn't go away? What if your marriage doesn't get better overnight? What if the doctor says that you have cancer and even though the outcome seems like it may be okay, the journey seems long? What if the loss of a loved one has left a scar so deep in your life that you don't see an end to your grief? The waters don't part all the time. God can part them. But sometimes that's not what's best. When the waters don't part, what can we do? God has a message for us today. How will we deal with it? What will we do when the waters don't part? And that's the title of our lesson today, When the Waters Don't Part. Now, I know that God has to allow some tough things to happen. I know He does, and He doesn't do it because He doesn't love us. In fact, it's right the opposite. He allows these things in our lives because He loves us so very much. And you see, when you come to trust in Christ as your Savior, what God wants is you to become more and more like His Son Jesus every day. And the more obedient we become, the more true we stay to God, no matter what we're facing in life, we allow God to chisel away from us everything that does not look like His Son. It's like a piece of coal that under enough heat and pressure turn, becomes a diamond. The question is, where do we find our strength? Where do we find our footing to stand when the pressure is on? I think that we can look at three different stories this morning to see exactly that. And we'll look at three different steps. So look with me over there at chapter 6 where we turn to the book of Daniel. And here, just a little background, the kingdom of Judah has fallen. The temple in Jerusalem has been destroyed. Thousands of captives have been taken into Babylonian captivity. One of them named Daniel, whose name would be changed to Belteshazzar, Belteshazzar 
a Babylonian name to get him more ingrained in the Babylonian culture. And after living through the rule of several kings, including the harsh rule of Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel finds himself in chapter 6 under the rule of King Darius. So we'll read verses 1 through 3. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 princes, which should be over the whole kingdom. And over these princes, three presidents, of whom Daniel was first, that the princes might give accounts unto them, and that the king should have no damage. Then this Daniel was, pre was preferred above the presidents and the princes, because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king thought to set him over the whole realm. So Darius here has split the empire up into 120 provinces with an officer ruling over each province, and then Daniel and two other administrators were to watch over those officers and protect the king's interest. But one thing was different about Daniel. God was blessing Daniel in everything that he did. Everything that, that Daniel did was heads and shoulders above everyone else. He was the smartest, he was the brightest, he was the most confident, and he was the most humble. King Darius loved Daniel. And in verse 3, we see that King Darius' plan is to put Daniel over the whole empire. Well, that sets a whole lot of jealousy in motion. All right, so all the king's administrators and the officers, the people of that land, were absolutely torn up that the king loved Daniel so much. All right, and here they were like, Look at how long we've been working at this job. And now the new guy comes in and gets moved up. I mean, he's not even one of us. So they set out to destroy Daniel. And they tried and tried to dig up dirt on Daniel, but he never messed up. Daniel was faithful, responsible, and trustworthy in all that he did. So they had to go to plan B. Daniel's God. They knew that Daniel prayed without fail three times a day, every day. So they said, if we can go to the king and, and we can trick him into making a law that nobody can pray to anyone except for the king for 30 days, then we'll have him. Then we'll have Daniel. And that's exactly what they did. They went in and they tricked the king into signing this law, that exact law, and the king never knew that they were setting Daniel up. Well, Daniel did what Daniel did. He kept on praying three times a day. Every day would go upstairs, face Jerusalem, and pray, giving thanks to God. Eventually, these men caught Daniel praying and immediately went to the king. And this is how the conversation went. King, now didn't you make a law that said if anyone is caught praying to anyone except for you for the next 30 days that they'll be thrown into the lion's den. And the king replied, yes, I did. That law stands and cannot be revoked. And they said, well, king, this just so happens that this Daniel that you love so much, he has ignored your law, and he still prays to his God three times a day. This upset the king very much because at that point he realized that he had been tricked 
And the king tried searching through the law books all day to get Daniel out of it. That's how much he loved Daniel. In fact, he searched until the sun, until sundown, and his time was up. Finally, he had to call for Daniel to be arrested, to be thrown into the lion's den. Daniel is in a tough spot. He knows by now that the waters are not going to part at this moment. He knows he's going to the lion's den. And in verse 16 of chapter 6, the king tells Daniel, Your God, whom you serve continually, He will deliver you. So they escort Daniel into the lion's den. They roll a stone over the mouth of the den. The king seals it, and the king walks away. And the king's love for Daniel really showed that night because he couldn't enjoy any of the entertainment that was going on in the palace that night. He couldn't eat. He couldn't sleep. And early the next morning, the king is at the lion's den shouting for Daniel. Daniel 6, verse 20. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Daniel answers him in verse 21 and 22. O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. How did Daniel do it? How, how do you get through when you're facing that pressure and you know that the waters are not going to part at that moment? The answer is in verse 23. Then was the king exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no manner of hurt was found upon him because he what? Trusted in his God. The first step is to trust in God. God was allowing Daniel to go through this. God was allowing Daniel to go into the lion's den. He was not keeping it from happening. But Daniel trusted God. Daniel trusted that whatever God would allow him to go into, that he would also carry him through. Psalm 112.7 says, He shall not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord. Psalm 9.10 says, And they that know thy name will put their trust in thee, for thou Lord, has not forsaken them that seek thee. Proverbs 3, 5. says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. With this kind of trust in God, we can get through when the pressure is on. But for the next point, let's look at Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. 
First of all, we need to see that when God created everything, He created it perfect. Genesis 1.31 says, God looked over all that He had made and saw it was very good. God and man strolled through the garden together. They had an awesome relationship together. But man sinned against God, then that sin separated us from God and has carried on ever since Adam. Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. We've all sinned. We are all in the same boat. There's no one better than another. We are all born into this world in a pickle, separated from God by our sin. We are far from perfect, and God can only accept perfection. So what is the solution? God said, I created man, I love man, but man needs a perfect sacrifice to have a relationship with me. And since God is the only perfect one, He wrapped Himself in flesh and came to this earth to die for our sins. He literally came Himself and died for us so that we could be made one with Him again. How awesome is that? But what I want us to see today is what happened right before Jesus, God in the flesh, went to the cross to die for us. In Matthew 26, 38, that verse just above our verse that I, I told you to flip to, Jesus told Peter, James, and John, my soul is exceeding sorrowful. Now Jesus is nervous. He's scared. He's sorrowful. But Jesus isn't nervous or scared or sorrowful because He is about to be beaten. It isn't because He's about to be whipped with the Roman scourge. It isn't because His beard is about to be plucked from His face. It isn't because He's about to have a crown of thorns driven down into His skull. It isn't, it, it isn't even because He's about to go to the cross and die. Jesus is sorrowful here because he has been at one with God the Father throughout all eternity. And in just a few hours, the sin of the whole world is about to be placed on him. And for the first time throughout all eternity, God the Father is going to have to turn his back on his son. That is why Jesus is sorrowful. But look at Matthew 26, 39. And he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as Thou will. The next step is submitting to God. Though the water was not parting for Jesus, Jesus was grieved to the point of death here at the Garden of Gethsemane, but then he says, I want your will to be done, not mine. 1 Peter 5, 6 
says, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time. When we get to the point where we put our wants and our thoughts aside and submit to God, knowing that He is good all the time, there's never a time when He's not good or perfect or holy or righteous. And we can look to God and say, I want your will to be done in my life, not mine, even if it means I have to get out of my comfort zone for just a minute. I submit to your ways because your ways are higher than mine. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. With this kind of submission to God, we can get through when the pressure is on. And for the final point, let's look at Job chapter 1, verse 1. Job chapter 1, verse 1 says, There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. Now Job was a, a man of integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. And Job had been blessed majorly. If you look right below where we just read to verses 2 and 3, we see that Job had quite the inventory at his at his place there. Seven sons, three daughters, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camel, 500 teams of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and many servants. I mean, Job had it going on, right? Job had it going on. Now look down at verses 6 through 12. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him and around his household and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So, God tells Satan, have you noticed my blameless servant Job who fears me and stays away from evil? And Satan says, well, he's got good reason. You've blessed him and you put a hedge around all that he has. Satan says, take his stuff away and watch. He'll curse you, he'll curse you to your face. God says, okay, you can touch his stuff, but don't touch him. And that's exactly what happened. Hey, Job, your oxen were plowing and the donkeys were feeding beside of them, and then bam, just like that, the Sabians raided us, stole your animals, killed your farmhands except for me. 
while he was still speaking. Hey, Job, the fire of God has fallen from heaven, burned up your sheep and all your shepherds except me. Before he got done speaking, hey, Job, three bands of Chaldean raiders stole all of your camels, then killed all of your servants except me. Before he got done speaking, hey, Job, your sons and daughters were eating in the older brother's home, and a great wind came through and collapsed the house and killed all of your children, but I alone escaped to come tell you. My goodness, all of that inventory that we talked about before is gone. Gone. Can you imagine that much loss over a lifetime? Much less than one day. But Satan was wrong. Job didn't curse God. Job worshipped God. Now look over at chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. Satan comes before the Lord again. It says, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? And still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. I'd just like to point out, have you noticed that Satan is only allowed to do what God allows? He's, he, he can only do what God allows him to do. So Satan here says, yeah, I was wrong about Job. He didn't curse you to your face, but all that was just stuff. All right, that was just, that's all it was, was just stuff. But if you take his health, he'll surely curse you to your face. God says, okay, but you can't take his life. And so Satan leaves and strikes Job with sore boils from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. Even Job's wife is saying, just curse God and die. Job says, are we only to receive good at the hand of God and never bad? The water is definitely not parting for Job. This man has been through it. He never curses God, but he is wondering why about, about what's, what he's going through. And Job isn't even asking the regular why questions about what is going on in his life. Job is in such anguish in chapter 3, verse 10, He's asking, why was I even born? Was I born for this, to see all of this trouble? What do you do? I mean, what do you do? When you're faced with things like this in life, the pressures of life are mounting upon you and the waters are not parting. Job chapter 19 Verses 25 through 27 holds the answer. Job 19, 25 through 27 says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and He shall stand at the last on earth, and after my skin is destroyed, this I know, 
that in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. How my heart yearns within me. The last step is to know. Job has lost all of his children. He's lost all of his possessions. He's lost his health. He sits there by a heap of ashes, scraping sore bowls with a rock. His wife has told him that he's crazy. All of his friends are telling him he must have done something wrong to deserve all of this. Job says, look at me in my anguish. I had a lot, and I lost it all. I sit here and wonder why I was even born. And in the middle of this storm, in the middle of this wondering why, in the middle of not knowing a whole lot about my situation, the only thing I can hold on to in this pressure that keeps me sure-footed is I know my Redeemer liveth. Knowing is what kept Job going. Knowing that he had a Redeemer in Jesus Christ. Knowing that he had a champion who had brought to him salvation. Knowing that his salvation was held by those nail-scarred hands. Knowing that even if God only allowed him to live for another five minutes, it would only transport him into the presence of his Savior in glory. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. When we know like this, we can get through when the pressure is on. So we saw three steps today. Trust, submit, and know. In Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has not now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Since we have seen these great men of faith today, let us look to their example. Let us run the race as they have by chunking this weight off of the world. As we trust and as we submit and as we know and as we look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And like Jesus, let us look to the joy that is ours in eternity. Then go and endure our cross, whatever that cross may be, to serve our risen Savior while we are here on this earth. Then as we joyfully serve Him, we can trust in Him like Daniel. We can submit to Him like Jesus. And like Job, we can know with all certainty that God is working all things together for the good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Let's pray. My God, I come to you this morning just thanking you so much for the opportunity to be in your house this morning that we can come and get into your word and learn more about you and what we can do when the pressures in life 
mount upon us and the waters aren't parting. God, You are the one true living God. There is none like You. So just work this Word into our lives and help us as we face things to always trust in You like Daniel, to submit to You like Jesus, and to know like Job. Help us to always be faithful to serve You through all things with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Just work this Word into our lives and change us by it. It's in my Savior, Your Son, Jesus' name. I pray it. I love You. Amen.